the year was 2003, and I felt like a decision had to be made. My musical career, as short-lived as it was, was really over. Jackie, my wife, and I and our two children were living in a really nice suburb of Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, great, great spot. We were homeschooling our kiddos. I was making really good money at a company as their computer IT guy. But I felt stuck. I didn't really like the job. I was pretty good at it, but I didn't really like it. I felt like I was spinning my wheels. You know, I'd moved there for music, and that was kind of over. Some of my friends had already left and went back to their home places. And here we were, me and my wife and two kiddos, 2,000 miles from home. And I wondered, what do I do now? And I realized that I was having in that season of my life a come-to-Jesus moment. You ever heard that term, come-to-Jesus moment? A kind of a moment where you start to confront everything, you know, look at everything, kind of lay out everything in front of you and realize, I, I need to make a decision here. And uh, I, I prayed a lot about it. I, I was talking to friends about it. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. Should I change careers? Should I get into ministry, which is something that I studied for, but really wasn't doing it on a full-time basis? Should I be a youth minister? I didn't know. So I was having this come-to-Jesus moment. If you've never heard that phrase before, it, it, well, at least the Urban Dictionary defines it uh, like this. It's sort of an epiphany. When someone realizes the truth of a matter, a sudden intuitive perception or insight, or figuring out the essential meaning of something, uh, sort of a coming clean, admitting maybe failures or where you got off track, a moment where you realize you got to get back to your core values, sort of, a, sort of a moment of truth. And I definitely had that. And through that process, it was sort of a, a gut-wrenching thing because I really didn't know what God was calling. I didn't really feel like I was hearing from the Lord that clearly. And started praying about it, and we were fasting and trying to figure out what we were supposed to do. And um, through prayer and some good counsel and a lot of pull back to the Northwest somehow, we entered into something that I'd never heard of before. The lead pastor of the church we were going to at the time said, Ben, have you ever thought about church planting? I said, I don't know what that is. Because, you know, you look around and there's church buildings, you just figured... I guess they just, they've always been here. But no, actually, at some point, somebody has to take the initiative and start one. And so in that gut-wrenching come-to-Jesus season, my wife Jackie and I and another couple relocated to the Seattle suburbs in 2003. And in 2004, Easter Sunday in March 2004, we launched Common Ground Church up in Maple Valley, Washington. And we met in a Met at Tahoma Middle School, if I remember right. Brand new school, really nice school. And uh, then a few years later, all due to that gut-wrenching come-to-Jesus moment back in Tennessee, we moved to this town called Dallas, Oregon. And this weekend marks the 15th 
birthday of Dallas Church. Yeah, you can, you can clap. That's okay. <laughs> Feels weird. I don't know. We had our first Sunday on October 21st, 2007 in Whitworth Elementary School. That was our first Sunday. But all of that happened really from a series of gut-wrenching sort of come-to-Jesus moments. Uh, have you ever had any of those moments in your life? Because they can happen in a number of different ways, not like maybe mine, my experience, but it could be, you know, a job, a career, either starting or coming to an end, or a, a project you were working on that was, didn't work, or maybe a business failed, or a relationship. There's a lot of things that can happen to us that brings us to our knees sometimes, causes us to stop and really assess everything, and have a come-to-Jesus moment. Maybe you've had that. Well, we're going to be talking about this come-to-Jesus reality moment in the book of Nehemiah, believe it or not, because the people are going to have a moment like that. So if you have a Bible or a device, you can start finding Nehemiah chapter 9. That's where we're going to be today. We've been walking through this story, a story that's been going on a long time. By the, by, by the, by the time Nehemiah comes on the scene, there's already been a lot of work done. And as we saw last week, the, the, the temple's been rebuilt, the walls have been rebuilt, they're starting to repopulate the city. So all the rubble has kind of started to take shape and be rebuilt, but there was something else that needed to be revived and rebuilt, and that was the people and their spiritual lives. That had been in rubble and shambles for too long, and so we saw even how last week uh, Andrew did a great job of talking through Ezra and the Levitical group, helping the people understand the law of Moses. And, and we find that they, after that happened, they, they, they were like ecstatic. Some people were like starting to, to mourn a little bit, but they were like, no, 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 this is not a time to mourn right now. It's time to celebrate. So they had like a week-long party, and then it was time to reassess where they were spiritually. And that's what we're going to get into in chapter 9 today. They understood the law and that helped them realize that they were far from the law. And so they needed to have sort of this come to Jesus moment. So let's pause for a word of prayer. And then we'll get into today's message because it's going to be time for revival. We meet on Sundays like this, whether that be online, hello, we see you, or in person. We gather like this, like Christ followers all over the globe. We're one big dysfunctional family of faith. Why do we gather on Sunday? Because that was the day Jesus rose from the dead and changed human history forever. So let's in that spirit pause for a word of prayer. Father, we come before you. You're powerful and mighty. You're still doing miracles. And Father, there's things you want to rebuild and revive in our lives, Father. So help us listen to you today. Listen to your word. Uh, hear from the, from the people of Israel in this time frame. But Lord, maybe hear what you have for us right now today. Father, help our hearts to be softened to your Holy Spirit. And Father, may you do immeasurably more than any of us could imagine or ask for according to your power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Nehemiah 9. Let's go there. So the people now are very familiar with the law of Moses, and they're getting more and more familiar with it, and they realize, well, we may have some areas that we have been lax on in our obedience level. And so here we are in chapter 9. Let's just read the first couple of verses, and then we'll kind of walk through 9 and 10. We don't have time to unpack every word, but let's start there. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Now, your version might be different, and that's okay. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth, 
and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. And we'll see listings of the Levites and the people helping try to get the people's hearts back on track. So they, they're hearing from the word of the Lord, and they, like a quarter of the day, they're standing and they're worshiping, hearing from the Lord. I, I, uh, I won't go a quarter of the day today in this message. I'll only do my allotted time, so you're welcome. But the people are, are getting familiar again with the word of God, and you'll notice that, yeah, they're, they're sort of, Physically having this come to Jesus moment, if you will. And you might think it odd that they're throwing like dirt on their heads and they've got sackcloth and ashes, but that was an ancient Near East way to show that we're we're off track. We've made some mistakes. There's some things that we need to mourn. And as we've been talking about, they're mourning the fact that now they know the law and they realize they've been far from it. So the people are in sackcloth and ashes. They're, they're putting dirt on their heads. And they're, they're hearing the word of the Lord again. And the Levites are there helping them out, helping them understand it. And they stood in their place. And then what happens next is they get a history lesson. The Levites and Ezra and the whole team walk them through the sordid tale of the people of God. So they take some moments and they look back over their story. And they go over, in fact, the Israelites still, even I think Jewish people to this day, love to retell the story and the festivals and all the great heroes of the faith. And so the Levites walk them through, well, here's what the Lord has done. And so they start with saying, the Lord is great. And he called us to be the people of God. And the people were standing and he brings them through creation and then brings them to the story of Abram not Abraham yet Abram and they tell the story of Abram leaving his place and going to what would be the future home of the Israelite nation and so they go through this big long history list of what happens about what God was doing and 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 then and then the people of Israel that were rescued from you know the Pharaoh and they, they love to cheer on Moses because Moses like stood up to the Egyptian empire and they said, uh-uh, and we're going to take you out of these Egyptian places and we're going we're to build our own nation. And it's going to be a nation not built on a pharaoh or a king. It's going to be a nation built on God. He's going to be our, our rock, our cornerstone. And so they're bringing the people all this history lesson of what's happened, retelling the story, of the Red Sea, and that, how awesome that was. And then, of course, we get to the desert, and, and wandering, and that was a tough time for them. And, they're, and, and, they're, and how they, how they were, were in, in the desert for 40 years, and walking them through all this history. But then we find out another big part of their history lesson, and that shows up in verse 16. You see what it says? God's doing these great things. We're going to have this people. They're going to be special. And then what does it say in verse 16? That ominous conjunction, but they. But they and our forefathers, our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck 
and did not obey your commandments. So God was doing this great thing and the people struggled with obeying the commandments. And so the sordid tale of the people trying to obey but failing and what God wanted to do, God is good and wanted to help them out, retelling the story of the good, the bad, the ugly, the shortcomings. And then, after all that history lesson, then we get to verse 38. And now the people are talking about themselves. And if you notice, the, the, the voice changes from how great God is and he's doing stuff and then they, which have been our forefathers, and now it turns personal. Our God. Right here and now. Verse 30, 30, start with verse 32. It says, Now therefore, our God, the great and mighty and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. So now it goes personal. The story's been retold, and now the people are, are looking around and saying, What about us? What about what we're going to do? We heard what God did. We heard what happened in, in, the, in, in the ancient nation of Israel, our forefathers, and now we come to the present. And they decide that they want a different story. They decide that today, today's the day, we're going to do something different. So they commit to being that different sort of people. We saw what God did, what he intended was good, and then we saw the nation struggle and our forefathers struggled and they didn't obey and... But now for us, we're going to get serious. We're going, to, we're going to tell a new story. And so verse 38, what does it say? Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, our priests. There's something about writing something down that goes from this thing floating up here to taking up space and mass and something that has weight. Think of the things that you put your name on. Maybe you sign a letter. Or all the ads that we've seen lately, this ad paid for by this candidate or whatever it is. When you put your name down on something, it takes weight. Some of you might be married and there was a document you had to sign in the county that you got married in. To show this legal, this, this weight of, I commit to this person. Or maybe when you bought a home or bought a, got a loan or whatever it might be, when we actually say something then put it in writing, something changes in the universe. It's like it takes shape. And so the people are saying, we've seen what God has done, right? And we've seen what happened with our forefathers, but today it's going to be a different story. They want to do something different. And the word there is interesting we make a firm covenant is what the English Standard Version says. Your version might say something else. Like we make, we make a promise. Uh, maybe we make a pledge. We, we, yeah, we make that. So different words. The Hebrew is interesting. The normal word in Hebrew for making a pledge or a, a promise is berit. But in this case, and, and this is the only like, few places in Scripture does the, this word show up. And the people use a different word. They want to take it up a notch. So the Hebrew word there is amanah, which means we're going to keep this pledge, but we're going to do it faithfully. So it takes up the, uh, I'm going to, I promise, I, I'm going to do it, you know. 
but I'm going to faithfully do it. So, so the word is a little, got a little more weight to it, and that's when they sign the document. So now people are saying, look, we commit to this revival from this point on. We commit to be that people that God always intended for us to be. We're going we're gonna to keep this promise and we're going to do it faithfully. Amanah. Now, it begs the question, well, what were they going to keep faithfully? Well, the law of Moses. Okay, what's that? You know, what was the law of Moses? What do they, what do they consider the law of Moses? The law handed to the people by Moses. Well, that's one of them, but there are five books that the Ten Commandments show up in. Torah, right? So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and the retelling in Deuteronomy. So the people commit to all that. Now, that doesn't all show up in chapter 10, because chapter 10 kind of unpacks what the people were committing to, to do faithfully. And we would expect, yeah, the people would already know, of course, it's got to include the Ten Commandments, right? We've got we to have the Ten Commandments. So there's some things assumed in here that the people knew, well, that was part of it. But we have like four or five things listed specifically in chapter 10. And you may wonder, well, why wasn't it all listed when they're, they're committing to do it all, but there's only like four or five highlighted. Well, there's a good chance that these were the ones that kept tripping up the people. They kept stumbling on. So... Nehemiah records some pretty key areas of obeying the law that they really needed to listen to. So, we find in chapter 10, and again, all the names are listed, all the people that sealed their names to this, and they weren't just going to berate this, they were going to amanah. They were going to faithfully pledge to do this. And so the people's names are there, and then these are the practices, these are the pieces of the law that they really need to, to hone in on that they were struggling with. The first one, kind of already hinted at in chapter 9, was intermarrying with other tribes and nations. Now, I know this seems weird for us to say in our modern sensibilities. Like, that just seems weird because you know, we don't necessarily have some of those same hang-ups. But this was God's people, and these were people that had a history going back all the way, again, to who? Abram. And even past that, I mean... Noah, I mean, the, the, their family line made a difference because it was telling the story of God. So, God asked them, hey, don't intermarry because you're supposed to be my special people. Now, we're looking back on it 2,000 years from the time of Jesus, who was one of these in the bloodline, right? So, we know now that it was also important for Jesus a couple hundred years after this. But they were supposed to keep this, this, this continuing story of God. And, and it always seemed like whenever the people of Israel started to intermarry, and we even saw this with Solomon back in the day, when he started to intermarry, he started to kind of be drifting off from God, drifting off from his role as the king. So it tended to make things difficult for the people to be the people of God. So they, they pledged not to do this intermarriage thing anymore. They pledged to do that, and we don't have probably time to unpack all that is behind that, but I encourage you, that might be an area you look at, of why that was so important. I think there's a lot of reasons, but they also commit to, and this is a pretty, to me this seems like a pretty easy thing, they commit to keeping the Sabbath. So up until this point, the people have been kind of struggling with not just the intermarriage thing, but also 
struggling with keeping the Sabbath. And what was the Sabbath? No, no ordinary work. Do you remember what day that was? Seventh day, which is a Saturday, right? So, well, we, we'd call it Saturday, looking at it back with our calendar, but it would, Saturday is a day that, generally speaking, you weren't supposed to do any ordinary work. The people were struggling with that. Maybe they were still doing commerce. In fact, we do find out that they were doing all kinds of things on the Sabbath that they, they knew they weren't supposed to do. The people promised, okay, no more, inter- no more intermarriage and no more breaking the Sabbath. We're going we're gonna to respect that day, keep it holy. And by the way, that was which commandment? Does anybody know? Nerd moment? Don't look at my hand. So the fourth commandment is keep the Sabbath. So... The people commit to that. What else do they commit to in chapter 10? They also commit to keeping the seventh year. You know what that seventh year was supposed to be for Israel? One of them was debt cancellation, which seems crazy in our culture right now. Wouldn't that be cool? The bank just calls you up and said, hey, you're good. Seventh year, you know, I realize you're only like six years into your 30-year mortgage, but it's the seventh year free. Now, I want that kind of policy. I would vote for that politician. No. So the seventh year, they were supposed to, there was a debt forgiveness thing. Also, they were supposed to let let their fields go, like not not harvest them. And there's probably a a lot of reasons for that, replenishing the land, letting the land take a break. Uh, We used to do that when I was on the farm. We used to have years where we didn't grow anything on bits of land. So they were supposed to let it rest. And then, you know, people that maybe were struggling economically could could harvest some of that. So that was supposed to happen. The people weren't doing that. So they commit to doing this. We will keep that seventh year. And they also commit to actually supporting their spiritual leaders. So the Levites were supposed to be in charge of what? The temple and the sacrifices and all that and taking the offerings and all that. But the Levites in the law were not allowed to own property. They weren't allowed to do that because the, the nation was supposed to, to help them. Because they were in charge of keeping their central identity, that is the people of God, keeping the worshiping community healthy. And so the people of the different tribes were supposed to help the Levites. And so they didn't need to have cattle. They didn't need to have land because the people took care of them. Well, they weren't doing that. So some of the Levites were out there farming the land instead of taking care of what? The temple, the sacrifices, the spiritual identity of the people. So they commit to doing that as well. And they do this, again, they're doing this on their feet. They're doing this sober-minded. They are, they are, they're serious about this. I mean, that's why some of them were wearing you know, sackcloth and ashes and dirt on their head, because they're like, we are serious this time. We're going to be God's people. We've seen all the mistakes of our forefathers. This time, we're, we're cleaning house. This is going to happen this time. And they even do something that the ancient Near Easter folks used to do, which seems, again, odd for us, but just listen in. In Nehemiah chapter 10, we're, verse 28 and 29, it says this, And the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding. In other words, everybody. They join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a a dual thing here. They call it a curse and an oath. So generally, when you're making, remember, their their promise was, we're not just going to berate this, we're going to amanah, which means we're going to obey, 
We pledge to do this and we're going to do it faithfully. And if we don't, we call a curse on ourselves, which was a common thing. When you promised to do something, there was consequences if you didn't do it. So it was a, kind of an ancient Near East thing that you would call both a promise and a curse if you didn't keep it up. So in, in verse 29, everybody enters into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God as his rules and his statutes. Signed, sealed, delivered. Amanah. We're going to do this faithfully. Curse on us if we don't keep our oath. Right? Are, we with, are you with me? So they decide we're going to do this. This is going to be our generation is going to make a difference. And, and maybe in the back of their minds they're thinking, maybe we're going to have our nation back. Maybe we're going to be the world empire. We're going to be that, that, that nation not ruled by a king or a pharaoh, but a nation ruled by God like we were always supposed to be. Back in their minds, they might have been thinking that way. They agree to be serious. And then they're even going to take care of the tithing and the first fruits. We're going to do it all. We're going to support the Levites. We're going to make sure worship happens like it's supposed to. There's going to be a spiritual identity again. We're going to be healthy people. They agree to all of it. So they really, they really had like a collective come-to-Jesus moment. I realize Jesus comes later in the story, but you see my point. They had a real moment where they had to decide, are we going to be that people? Now, they're committing to quite a bit. You think about, how, anybody know how many laws are in the Torah, the first five books? It's upwards of, what, 600, something like that? Now, by the time Jesus came on the scene, the Jewish tradition had added a whole lot more to that. But... Here and now, that's a, that's a commitment. They agree to do it faithfully. They have this brutal awakening. They see what's happened in the past. They see what God intended. Now they have an opportunity to, to rewrite it, to do a new story. They, they commit to reviving it. And they realize that sin has always been our problem. And disobedience is our big problem. So if we just obey, and we see this in the pages of the New Testament. When we get to the first century, the synagogue system is well in play. And the Pharisees' main role, many of them were lawyers. If we're going to get God's favor, we got to obey. Sometimes the Pharisees get a bit of a bad rap. But they were trying to get the people to do this. And it was difficult. Of course, what did they need? They needed saving by a Savior. A Messiah who was of these lines that they were so careful to protect. It all comes together, doesn't it? It all starts to, to come together. But here and now, they have this come to Jesus moment. And they realize, despite our sin, God still wants to do stuff with us. He's still behind us. He still loves us. And that's good news. Not only good news for them, but it's good news for us. So where are you? Let's talk about you and I right now. Yay, us. Remember, the people kind of went, the, the voice changed in chapter 9. It went like, God's doing this cool thing. <clears throat> then our, our forefathers, well, they, they had a tough time. God was trying to work with them. They, they screwed up. But us, now, every generation has to come to this moment. Will we be God's people? How about you? How good are you at confronting the brutal facts in your life? Like maybe some of you are in a come-to-Jesus moment right now. 
Again, that could, have, that could have happened by several different things. The circumstances in your life, addictions. It could happen by relationships. Good or bad, you can have moments where you have to stop and go, okay, what's really going on and what am I going to do? You might be at a crossroads right now in your life and you have to decide, okay, what's next? What's next? And I want to I go even further than that, if, if I may. What things do you need to confront in your life right now? What are some areas of your life that maybe Jesus doesn't have the key to? Some areas of your life that you've got locked away and that's, that's off limits, Jesus. That could be habits, hang-ups, even ambitions sometimes. What area of your life are you not being honest with? Ooh, pin, pin drop. Like, what's going on with your story? Are you lying to yourself in an area of your life? Like, let me, let me take it one step further. Are you justifying some disobedience in your life and calling it freedom? Whew. See, the people realize that sin has always been the issue. And, and yes, we have a Savior who loves us. And he, salvation comes from Him. But Jesus also said, if you love me, you'll obey what I say. And I feel like sometimes people act, even in the church, as if the rules don't apply to me in my situation. And I'm not trying to step on toes, but I kind of am. What area of your life are you justifying disobedience in and calling it freedom? Well, Jesus freed us. Okay, but even the Apostle Paul realized that he didn't want to use his freedom to hurt someone else. Just let that sit for a bit. Where are you at? Are, are you needing a come to Jesus moment in some area of your life? Have you been justifying disobedience? Is, is there some mourning that needs to take place in your life? Some, some area where you need to realize, I need to put on some sackcloth and ashes and some dust and realize I've been justifying this for way too long. It's time for a different story. Is there an area of your life where you need to have a come to Jesus moment? The people in Nehemiah's time had to have that moment. And they had to ask themselves, what are we going to do? We can either obey or we can follow the pattern of every empire that's ever come and gone. What are we going to choose? And what will you choose when you have this brutal moment where you're confronting things? Why do you think it's so important to go back to history and re-look re at it again? Think about your history. What's the old adage? Those who don't learn from the past sometimes get doomed to repeat it. And so the, the people were confronted with all the mistakes that their forefathers had made, and they wanted to do a different thing. They wanted to make a choice that day to do something different. In your life, maybe you need to take some time and look back at your history and say, what, what is it time to let go? What thing have I been holding on to for way too long? And Jesus wants to free you from that. What area in your life needs to come to Jesus' moment? And maybe, maybe you need to realize that the Holy Spirit, once you say yes to Jesus, comes to live inside of you to empower you to be the kind of person God's called you to be. There's a Holy Spirit power that enables us to do these things. But we are called to obey. There was an old hymn that I sang when I was a kid. I know some of you 
that, that maybe didn't grow up with hymns, you're like, oh, he's going to talk about hymns again. But there was an old hymn. It went like this. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. For some reason, it seems like in the modern church, we struggle with this. It's like we're allergic to the word obedience or discipline. We don't like suffering. We certainly don't like to have to wait for anything. Jesus said to his followers, take up your cross daily. In the first century, that meant everything. You're giving up everything by following Jesus. So my only point today is this, trust and obey Jesus. What area of your life needs to have a brutal confrontation of the facts, and you need to own it and say, I'm done with this. When, when we say we repent of our sin, that just doesn't mean you're sorry. You ever made your kids or grandkids, you know, they're fighting, their, kid, their brother and sister fighting, and you're like, apologize to your sister. Sorry. That's not repentance. Repentance is an action word. Repentance means I was going the wrong direction and I'm turning a different direction. What areas in your life need to have a come to Jesus moment and you need to truly repent? And that, mean, that may mean you repent every day and make a decision, I'm picking up the cross again. What area of your life needs to come to Jesus moment where you can trust and obey? Reawaken your commitment. Reawaken that in you. Jesus has called us to obey. And when we do, there is freedom. Not using a freedom as a cover-up for sin, but true freedom is obedience. We need to re relearn this, reawaken that. What is Jesus calling for you? Where have you been disobedient and calling it freedom? That's not the Christ follower way. Repentance is our daily routine. Jesus said, take up your cross daily. He said in John 14, in case you think I'm just making this up, here we go. John 14, 21. Are you ready for this? Whoever has my commandments and keeps them. You can have this all day long, but like keep it. So when Jesus talks about fidelity, that's for us. When Jesus talks about generosity, that's for us. When Jesus talks about loving your neighbor, that's for us. That makes sense? Like, he's called us to, to follow him. And Jesus said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is it who loves me. And he, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. You may miss that term, but I think that's pretty cool. He will reveal himself more and more to you as you begin to not just love him, but put his words into action. That's how you grow spiritually. It's through obedience. The scriptures call us not to just information about God, but life transformation. We become the new humans. Jesus is calling you and I to do that, so trust and obey. That's my big point today. And may we lean into that, not run away from it, lean in, and the Holy Spirit will empower that to happen. I want to pray over us. But if there's something you heard today, you need prayer over something, you need to make a decision to say yes to Jesus today, or you need to just talk to someone about an area that you need to come to Jesus moment in, don't leave without doing that today. Let's pray. Father, you're good and powerful and mighty. We know you're, 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 you're going to do immeasurably more than any of us could ever ask or imagine. So, Lord, we, we boldly ask for that, that you would do a revival in our hearts, that you'd help us to confront areas where we've been maybe misusing our freedom. 
that, Father, you'd help, help us to bring light into those areas so that we can have healing and hope and obey you like you've called us to do. Father, empower us by your spirit to trust and obey. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.